Thanks for tuning in to the Ready Platform podcast, sponsored by Patchbase and hosted by me, James Gerd, and Paul Rogers. We bring you interviews of industry thought leaders, the C-suite of tech companies and leading retail brands that help you understand e-com strategy and make better technology decisions. In return, all we ask is you tell other people about the podcast, share and like our posts on LinkedIn, and if you're new to the show, give us a rating wherever you are listening. So let's set up our new episode, and then we'll introduce you to our wonderful guest. So today's your chance to learn from the ex-founder and CEO of Ampliance, who scaled them into market-leading global DXP. Uh, and the ex-founder of Anthropology, which he grew into $200 million plus retailer. So there's some serious e-commerce and technology experience in the room today. And our topic is uh, is around smarter inventory management, fixing in-stock and off-the-line block issues, and driving better automation and efficiency in businesses with sweat. So let's start with a, a warm intro to, to James Brooke, who was... Uh, he's been on the podcast before in his days at Amkins, who's now the CEO at Swift. Hey, James, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you, James. And hi, Paul. Great to be back, I have to say. It's been a sort of longish absence, but uh, there's a lot lot of water, you know, gone under the bridge since then. We've had pandemics and goodness knows what else. And I left Amkins, but that was a great ride. So delighted to be here to talk about Swift and, and really to bring Michael with us because uh, he really is the expert and on all things in stock, not online and, and retail. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us today. Um, and Michael, a warm welcome um, to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, thanks, and really happy to be here. I just feel a little left out because I don't have the right accent, but I'll, I'll, I'll muddle on and, and hope that you guys can uh, understand me with my, my no. American accent. Um, well, I, I've read I've read enough um, reports saying that that the American accent is considered generally more friendly. So I think you're probably the listeners will enjoy it more than ours. They're probably bored of me and Paul anyway. By now. Um, let, let's start. I'd love you to just give people a little bit of background, your founder story. What brought you into Swift? Because you've obviously got a, a stack of experience in scaling a, a major e-commerce retailer. So can you tell us a bit about that and how that led into the Swift site? Yeah, so basically I'm what I, I would call a lifer in retail. I started in retail when I was 14 um, and have been in sort of management roles in retail for the past uh, over 30 years, um, really starting in and, and working across all areas of retail, starting in, in buying, planning, uh, you know, marketing uh, across, you know, operational areas. So I've really touched a lot of different parts of the puzzle in, in uh, retail. And and in key, I've sort of worked between a lot of departments and helped sort of coll- help their collaboration and, and coordinate the different departments in different roles. Um, when I uh, when I started, I basically wrote the business plan for and launched uh, Anthropology. I didn't start the business Anthropology, but I launched their e-commerce business. I started actually as a catalog. This is back in in '98. Uh, and then, then, then realized that there was this opportunity in the e-commerce world, and and sort of added a, a, a an e-commerce website onto it, and ran that direct to consumer business for 13 years in the U.S. Well, 10 years in the U.S. and three years in uh, in launching it in the U.K. and for the European market. So really, you know, managing all areas from uh, you know operations, uh, call center, everything, IT. All areas of that business, including obviously the the uh, merchandising and marketing parts of it. Um, so you know, really got a, a great deal of experience there. The the founder story really comes from um, while we were you know when we launched, we really were a catalog business, and we had this sort of sideline of an e-commerce website, which is kind of at the time people really used it a lot for marketing, you know, clear out your markdowns if you're a catalog business. 
And then there came a point where we really having trouble scaling the catalog because, you know, retail, you have to add new stores and that's a huge step function to, to grow the business. In catalog, you have to add, you have to mail out tons more catalogs. So that's really at sort of a high expense. So we were looking ways to sort of start scaling the business and saw that there was a lot of response on, on in customer side to newness on the website. So whenever we put something new up, we could just see how it fly out the door. So we're like, okay, here's this opportunity. And we really dove in and went for, uh, you know, like we doubled the assortment one summer, uh, really looking to see, you know, some significant growth in the business. And we're surprised at the end of the summer to only have seen like 15% growth. And, you know, despite the, you know, huge increase in the assortment. And at the end, you know, uh, my planning manager came to me in October and said, Michael, we've got a problem. We've got a million dollars worth of unsold inventory from summer that never actually even made it online. So we were sitting on all this inventory throughout. And I, you know, my first thought is, of course, I've got to go into my financial review meeting and explain to the CEO why I've got you know, a million dollars of inventory that I just sort of sat out for no reason. So I talked to my team and said, hey, what happened? And they all did this. Like, okay, it was somebody else's fault. Somebody dropped the ball. This is what didn't happen. That didn't happen. And what that told me is that wasn't a people problem because everyone's trying really hard. Um, and it wasn't one person dropping the ball, but every you know something was falling down across the board. And I really saw that where the, the key piece was is that they just didn't have the right tools to make it happen, to make to get the products, to <clears throat> excuse me, manage the process. And um <clears throat> There was, you know, we, like a lot of people, of course, we, excuse me, one second. We had a, uh, we had a, you know, a catalog process, you know, we had a retail process and we had a catalog process in the business. And so we're sort of band-aiding e-commerce onto that and making that, you know, sort of making it fit. And that wasn't working because we were using spreadsheets like we did in catalog works fine for a single project where everything's the same, but when you have product moving in and out and very rapid change in what's coming in when it arrives and a lot of variability it just doesn't work so that's what told me that I, okay i need to do something different so i worked with a developer and came up with a, a tool that helped us organize the uh, you know organize the process get everyone working from the same set of information and really helped us sort of move everything move everything into the same process and one singular process even though everything had completely different cadence it could all be part of one process and it worked really well. The next season, we were able to launch all the products on time. We really saw that lift in business that we had, we're looking for, and continued to grow the business. And what was really key is that we were able to grow the business without that step function. We actually were, were getting a lot of leverage of the, the resources we had, both from people and tool perspective, and really you know, saw a lot of growth and, and, and increase in profitability very quickly. And that was one of the challenges from the beginning was it was getting that you know high cost marketing cost of a catalog business getting it to be a profitable business so there was a lot of learning there what was what was interesting is that as we were this was really focused on the e-commerce business but the retail buying team saw what was happening said wow we really want a part of that because that that's working really well you guys are you know able to do a lot of things that we can't and so we they they joined on then you know just different parts of the business wanted to join in it became really the tool that ran sort of uh, the, the product process for all of anthropology, not just the e-commerce business. Then, you know, Urban Outfitters, which is a sister company, saw it and said, wow, we want part of that. So they joined it. So it became for Urban Inc. and the six brands, it became that sort of product tool for the business. Also for me, when I moved to the UK, it was really great because suddenly I had this great source of information and a process 
that you know I could slip right into and, and with a much smaller team be able to sort of emulate what the U.S. was doing in, in a very effective way. So it was really a very you know something that was a, a central part of my career at anthropology. Um, when I left and went out and did a lot of consulting, I was really surprised to see that other people didn't have it. I sort of assumed other people had figured this out and knew you know how to solve this. And I kept on going from one company to the other and seeing, you know, consulting on, on marketing strategy and many other things, but seeing that they all struggled with the same issue of not having a clear process, having a lot of delays in getting products live. And, you know, the, the teams complaining about how difficult it was for them to actually get products live on the site. And, you know, I wasn't coming out saying, you know, I've got this tool. I was just talking about how their business ran it. That just kept on coming up as a problem in retailer after retailer. So it told me, you know, a light bulb went off and I said, hmm, maybe there's an opportunity here. And uh, and that led me to, to launch Slack because I really feel like this is a key piece of the for the retail industry. And again, I sort of look at it from a different perspective. I look at it, you know, both from the front end, but I also really see how the, the holistic aspect of the business and how everything fits together and how essential it is for for everyone to be working for, you know, playing from the same seat of music, as it were. And that's really not what happens in retail because there's a lot of silos and a lot of uh, yeah. completely different processes and different teams working at different cadences and so somehow you know magically supposed to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting when you when you say that because it reminds me, Michael, that we first met when you became an Amplitz customer because you came over to London to launch Anthropology into Europe. Um, so we 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 got to know you very well then. And Michael started talking to me about the software business sort of, you know, in, in sort of 2014, 15 that, that he wanted to launch. We realized at Amplitz actually that it was the front end of the, of, sorry, it was the back end process that really powered that front end experience. If you didn't get really good, high quality product data, your product experience was going to be broken. So, so we started talking about this, I think, God, 2016, 2017, didn't we? And then I think, you know, ultimately you, you pulled it all together and, and launched the product. But it gave us an opportunity at Amplitz to think about how all those pieces would fit together. So when I left the company um, back in January of last year, you know, one of the first the people to give me a call actually was Michael. And I was like, great, fantastic, because we kept running into this problem at Amplitz all the time, which was that we'd do the big dog and pony show around content management. And then half the team would come up to me and go, but that's not really our problem. Our problem is we're working out of thousands of spreadsheets and we're just trying to manage this complex, multifunctional process, loads of departments involved, et cetera. But at Amplice, we just didn't solve it. So it just felt to me like unfinished business. So uh, I'm really delighted to, to have the opportunity to come on board because I think this is a big problem that many retailers don't even understand that they have in quite the fidelity that they should. Patchworks, the world's most modern integration platform. We can connect any key e-commerce system from storefronts to marketplaces and ERPs to fulfillment solutions. This allows retailers and partners alike to simplify their tech stack integration and do away with point-to-point -point vendor specific apps. We can automate and streamline the flow of data across your entire e-commerce business. Find out more at wearepatchworks.com. Yeah, I find this really interesting because we, we talk, I mean, people talk about like the importance of, of inventory and not just getting the right inventory on, but having the availability and having the visibility of it. And that is, you're right, it's backend, it's process, it's it's silos. I'd love to know from from your experience, because obviously you've you've done this scaling a large retailer online and you've worked with other businesses now, obviously, as a, as a vendor. What What is the biggest issue, do you think? Is it business culture because people are working isolated, making isolated technology decisions? Is it a lack of ownership of end-to-end -end process? Is it is it all of that? Because I've, I've certainly seen where you know a 
buying team has got their own um, product lifecycle management tool over here. There might be an ERP involved where the the basically that the the, uh, the SKUs get set up and the PO's get raised, and then there might be a link between the two. There might not. There might be manual. Then you've got maybe a PIM. Then you've got e-commerce. And you've got all these different places, but but typically they're not integrated. So. What do you think is the, the, the biggest cause, or is it just varies varying so much from business to business? Yeah, there's the, I think you know it really is both. Um, it's it's primarily that there are you know you, you said there's PLM and then there's the ERP, but actually in between there is where the buyers reside because it's actually design that's in PLM and it's you know it's the planners that are in the ERP and the buyers are typically in spreadsheets. And so there's all this key effort that they're making early in the process that's just being gathered in, in spreadsheets that isn't necessarily flowing down through the rest of the process. So there's lots of really great information and key information that gets lost early in the process. But it's because there are all these different systems and people working in different systems that other people don't touch, that that information and and you know fidelity gets lost throughout the process. In addition to that, because it's widespread, because it's not just one problem within the company. There's lots of pain points and lots of, of you know blood in the water as it or blood on the floor I think or whatever you call that James, uh, and blood on the, I think it's blood on the carpet. Thank you. Uh, but it's spread across so so broadly that it's really hard to pinpoint. For when you look at the people who are making decisions about how to uh, to make these this change in the business and this change in their approach, it's very hard for them to see where it is. So they're constantly uh, playing whack a mole and saying, okay, you know. The problem is breaking down in copywriting. We're going to fix the copywriters. They put all this resource. They add a bunch of new copywriters. They get an outside agency. They do all these things to get it going. And it's like, okay, that's flowing. Wait, the copy's still not flowing. Oh, because they're not getting information from this group. So then it's this whack-a-mole that they have to play. And, you know, it's it's not effective. And that's exactly what I was doing back in, in the day was, you know, trying to figure out how do I solve this? And we kept on trying it. Just we couldn't because it's just, it's spread so broadly. And you have to you have to solve all of them. In order to solve the problem, not just one. So I think that one of the big challenges is that because it's widespread within the company, it's difficult for the executives and the people who make the decisions to understand exactly how to solve it. Great. And then um, I guess next question. So obviously it's a tough environment at the minute. Um, lots of businesses not trading as well as they have been over the last few years. Um, and this is most relevant to businesses, I guess, are, you know, changing or like, you know, have high stock turnover or bringing a lot of new products online. Um, what's the business case? Like, why should people prioritize this um, in the current kind of economic climate? Well, I think there's, there's two parts to that. Um, the, on the, you know, on the one hand, I just sort of want to touch on the idea that it's only companies that have a very high turnover that this matters for. To, matters for. Because it's actually companies that have a have a small uh, assortment can also benefit tremendously because they've got a small assortment and you know and I'm not talking about you know 20 items if they have a couple thousand products and over the course of the year um, they've got to make every one of those work and they've got to make sure they've got all the details right and all the information right and often they they want to you know to, for that to be successful they have to be able to provide that information effectively and if they don't then they have actually that they don't have more products to fall back on. They've got each one of those has to work really well. So I think, you know, we have a customer who is has only 2000 products and it is really essential for their pro, for their business, make sure that every single one of them gathered, you know, gathers all the information so that they can really market those, those products really well. Uh, talking about the environment in, in my mind, like 
at this time when, when business is tough, moving the needle in sales is really tough. It's really expensive. And when that happens, you've got to be able to make sure that your back of your business is highly efficient and you're working really effectively and you're, you're getting all the benefit of, of not just the resources, but the, what, the products that come through um, you know, and the people that you have. You've got to make sure that that's all working really smoothly or you don't have the profitability to survive uh, the downturn of the market. So I think it's really essential. You know, this is the time when, yes, you continue to put, you know, to invest in the future. You continue to, you know, put things, put money towards things that are going to make a difference when the business, when business is strong. But you really, I think it's times like this that it's, it's absolutely essential that retailers kind of dial back a little bit on, on the, on the front end and focus very heavily on making sure that their business is highly efficient. It's interesting. So you want to add to that? I know you've... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. 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 Did you want to go add to that? <laughs> I didn't have anything to say, James. So off you go. Uh, cool. Uh, yeah. A link, a link question. Um, uh, uh, I guess Michael or James, whoever wants to take this, is, is you've got some, some interesting stats on the website. And I know the e-com industry, we are healthily yep. skeptical about claims. So let's push into that a little bit more. And yep. you've talked about you had a, you sat on a million dollars worth of stock anthropology that, that you can sell. Um, I'm assuming that that then leads through to price discounting to clear it, to make way for new seasons. And the stat I saw on your website, which obviously is good attention grabber, is that the in-stock and not online can lose one to 2% of full price sales. Um, um in a matter of days, et cetera, um, costing millions in margin erosion. So can you talk to me, how how, how have you come to that data? Um, like what's this based on? So um, it's interestingly, that's not, you know, a number that I made up. It, it's, it's uh, it actually came to me from the gap um, and talking to them about this, this same, very same problem. And it's, it's a simple math in retail that um, in, you know, there's a certain lifespan for a product. Uh, it, you know, it, it is, it, it's peak selling opportunity for a certain amount of time. So I, my favorite example is, you know, a long sleeve, uh, you know, a long sleeve polo, let's say, um, you know, it really has its peak selling between, you know, March and April because it's cool enough that you want the long sleeve, but you want lighter, you know, lighter weight, a lighter weight product. You don't want a sweater anymore. Um, and you know, you might still sell it in May, but you're only going to sell it at a discount because any customer going to buy it knows they only have a short amount of time that they're going to wear it before it's too it's too hot to wear long sleeves. So that you know, there's that time that you can sell it, and then, you know you may sell that you may sell long sleeve polos again in fall, but they're going to be different colors. So like that product has a lifespan, and um, <clears throat> you know, typically in retail they look at eight week selling cycles, in, with particularly in apparel. It, it varies by business, but in apparel it's typically an eight week selling cycle, and it might be six weeks in, in or four to six weeks in fast fashion, but Typically, it's around eight weeks, and it's very simple math. If you take, uh, you know, those eight weeks, to, it's basically one point eight nine percent per day between the when you bring the product in and when it goes on markdown. Because what happens is after eight weeks, they just mark it down because they've got more product coming in. They've got their open buy. They've got new inventory coming in that's slated in. They've got to move the goods in order to have room on the shelves in order to, in order to sell it. So it's very simple math. If you don't, you know, if you have eight weeks to sell it, the product, you know, for that product to live and you miss a week or two of it, you're literally giving away that margin. It's not at end. And so, you know, when you, when you look at different retailers and, and, um, even, you know, 
DIY and garden, there's a season for that. There's a certain amount of time, might be longer than eight weeks, maybe it's 12 weeks, but that's still, when you, when you do the math, it still ends up being over 1% that's disappearing per day because if you bring in you know, a garden bench six weeks late in the season or two weeks late, three weeks late in the season, you've given away you know, uh, a significant amount of margin. I also, I guess related to that, I'm intrigued on your perspective on this because one of the big issues that the that, that e-com and buyers working together have is on gauging demand and making accurate um, um, purchases for the next next draw. And actually, it's yeah. trying to me that this ISNO stuff, if, if you've not got the right inventory online and therefore you're not selling certain ranges, categories, products, that these sales data is skewed, which could lead to poor purchase decisions in terms of gauging what the true customer demand is because you might only see stuff as discount stock and then go right that's not going into core range yeah. in future Jed, do you is that is that is that uh, is that accurate have you seen that is that concerns that some of the retailers you work with have yeah no we definitely uh had a lot of uh, interest and concern about that in at anthropology in terms of you know how do we measure how do we, how do the planners measure the, the you know the right sales of product when you didn't know what it actually went live because you had you saw some selling in stores you didn't know what what went live online and so that would really you know throw off and obscure the real real selling period and you you reminded me one thing I wanted to highlight which is that it's not just an online problem because when you look at sixty to eighty percent of customers making their online purchase decisions you know pr- making the purchase decisions online before they go to stores you realize that they need to see the product in order to know that that's where they want to go. And back to my example, Lossy Polo, if you're looking for them and you go online and you don't see anything that suits me, you know, hits your fancy, um, you're going to go to a different store. So one of our, one of our clients, uh, their key, you know, one of the key reasons for the merchandising team for wanting Swift is that they saw, you know, people going to their competitors for the product because those products were online at the competitor fa- competitor faster. So they had their consistent tendency to be late in delivering goods online meant that they were actually missing out in, on sales in store because the product was not online for the customers to trigger the customers to go in. And they couldn't send out emails, you know, advertising the product because it wasn't available when they went online. So, you know, that throws not, it throws, A, throws off sales online and in store. It also throws off your, your selling curve because Customers aren't going on. You're saying, okay, that wasn't really a good item, but it wasn't, you know, nobody knew it was there until, you know, two weeks late into the season. Makes sense. Um, and I guess going back to that, like, Swift business case, which kind of product workflows and manual processes are you either removing or automating from a kind of operational perspective? Well, I think the, the interesting thing about it Paul is that is that as Michael says it's it's a big interconnected system. So you've got six to eight different departments that are that are busy trying to do their part of the process. And and generally, if you if you think about the two hundred odd data points you need to launch your product, because a lot of the the data points you need are internal as well. There's an awful lot of data collection and capture that helps you move that product through the process. Um, fundamentally, different parts of the business are, are responsible for different pieces. So, you know, buying team is kind of setting up and managing their assortment. They're uploading that data into the platform. 
But then you've got you know planners looking at that in terms of you know managing inventory and sort of when that product's going to land and marketing team trying to work through whether they actually going to promote that. So they've got a whole bunch of campaigns ready to go, but they're not sure yet whether that product is actually live on site. So they don't want to push that big email out until they're they're pretty sure. Ecom teams trying to you know manage all those things between them and make sure the product's actually activated and you've got the studio folks doing okay i've got to set up the studio i've got to make sure i've got the right models i've got to make sure that I've, I've done all the things that i need to do to efficiently get that product photographed and, and ready to go uh, and so the the challenge fundamentally is that you've got all of these different smaller workflows that are that have huge dependencies between them and this is really what swift does that, that really caught my attention is that michael's vision for this was look you just need to give everybody a, a single view of where that product is in the process. You've got total visibility of when when the product is going to go live, what status it is in, and where it sits in the assortment. And what that gives you is, is everybody in the team sort of then has all the data that they need to work out what's the next best action. So what should I be doing now? When I come in in the morning, you know, which bit of the workflow is most important? Which products should I be working on? And how do I move those products through the process with the right priority to make sure that we hit our targets so that we're you know, managing in, into the campaign in the right way so that we're going to hit our sales targets? And that's really what's broken. So when you start talking to retailers, they're like, yeah, I bought some studio tools and the studio tools help me to, to manage the studio process. But if I'm a, a planner or I'm a marketer, I don't know the status of that product without picking up the phone to the studio and saying, have you photographed that stuff yet? You know, is that stuff available? So, so Swift works its magic by putting everybody onto the same platform, giving them a prioritized set of work to, to work on. And then as things change, because things change all the time in retail, right? The weather changes, you know, stock might be shipped, you know, around the Horn of Africa now instead of the Red Sea because of all the issues in the Middle East. You know, these things are impacting the, the launch dates, they're impacting campaigns, they're impacting studio planning all the time. So. So as those changes happen, what's happening is that the whole system reprioritizes the workflow so that the team knows what it needs to do next at, at all times. And it's that visibility into the whole process that really gives you the, the benefit because otherwise what you've got is lots of disconnected workflows and lots of teams working really hard, but then everything's sort of falling down the cracks between them and there's no visibility and no accountability as to what needs to get done. I'm going to add to that uh, a, a key piece is that, you know, in theory, you, know, you just need a, you know, it sounds like, oh, you just need a place where everyone can look. What's key is that everyone works in SWEFT. It's not just having a place to, to go look for information. It, it's the fact that as part of your job, you're able, you know, you're, you doing your job helps, you know, move the process along, provides information, triggers the, you know, changes the priority immediately or, you know, passes the, pro the process on to the next person as you're doing your job rather than you do your job and then you go to this other system and update it to tell it oh i'm done with this part of the process because when you have when you do that with you know if you're looking at a system where it's it's primarily in one department people have to go there to update it it, it you get lag because you know you have islands of data separate pieces of data and then you have this this flow of information but you only get the information from those islands when when they you know get around to telling you that means you end up with lag in the system and so then th things don't feel uh, real time and then everyone starts calling each other and going outside the system and using email trying to figure out what the status of things is because they don't know they don't trust the system to be up to date it's really key is that everyone they're doing the jobs the buyer's doing their job when they reach a point 
the planners can see what's happening. They know what's going on and it's available to them in within the system. People downstream, the marketers, everyone, they know what's going on because it's all in that same system rather than being, oh, that's happening in the buyer's assortment place. Yep. And I'm not going to see that until it gets into the ERP and then that gets pushed forward into the other systems where I have access. That'd be great. Um, and I guess there is some crossover with a PIM and just to help our listeners understand like how would you typically work alongside a PIM? Um, and then a slightly separate question, but um, something that I was wondering while you were talking a second ago, who is your typical stakeholder that brings the product into the business? Good questions, Paul. Um, I, I might take the, the last one first. I think, you know, typically, as you say, the stakeholder has to be a relatively senior person in the business that has responsibility really for the performance of of the of the business in terms of particularly sales and profitability. So typically rolls up into CIO, COO type type level decision makers. There's obviously a uh, quite a few stakeholders that you need to corral into a new process and that need to be um, happy to adopt new tools. So you need you need some pretty senior um, sponsorship in order to make these things work. Um, but anyone really that that gets some visibility into the end to end and cares about not just the the sales number, pure sales number, but actually the efficiency and the profitability and the ability to scale the business really is a is a good person for us to talk to. Um, so you know, most of our customers that that like I say is a sort of CIO CO person. Um, in terms of how it works from a PIM perspective, well, <laughs> I like to tell people that we are PIM ish, but we're not a PIM, and the reason that. Um, I sort of put it that way is that we deal with product information, right? I mean, it's, you know, inevitably the word product sort of then sort of draws you to, well, if, it's, if you deal with product information, surely you're, you're a PIM. But really what we do is the workflow that is associated with gathering and aggregating all of that data that then might live in a PIM. So the PIMs themselves aren't very good generally at that front-end process and that front-end aggregation. The tools that they deliver into the business tend to be sort of system of record type tools. You know, you get nice forms with nice visualizations of the product. But when you look at how buyers and, and many of the other folks in the process like to work, they like to work in spreadsheets. They, they, they've got this love-hate relationship with Excel. You know, it's sort of frustrating because it's not version controlled and there's no workflow, but it's also very flexible and I can see my whole assortment. I can see all the data that I need to see all in one go. So, so what we did... At, at Swift, which I think is really smart from Michael's perspective, is is really try and replicate all the good parts of that spreadsheet interface into Swift, so that really what you're working on is a giant multi-user workflow-enabled sort of spreadsheet-like interface. So it's something that's very familiar to those those folks. They're really sort of you know for them adopting Swift is just like using the tools that they currently do, but with all the benefits of doing it on a single integrated platform. And that's not something that the PIMs do. They they just they just don't have any empathy really for those retail teams. And as a result, those teams just don't use them. So people often put in a PIM to solve this problem and discover that everyone's using Excel anyway. And that's obviously very frustrating. So so I think what we do is very much more the front end of that process. Uh, at the end of the day, the data is the data, you know, where it needs to live, you know, we can push it into a PIM. Um, some customers have a PIM because they've got a large static catalog as well as this dynamic stuff that's happening all the time. Um, so we can work with them in that regard. And the PIM itself is often optimized to to push that content into various different channels. So if you're going to do a lot of syndication, you know, many of the PIMs have a lot more capability than we would do 
around where that that content might end up. So you might be pushing that into Amazon, Google Shopping, you know, various different marketplaces, that sort of thing. That isn't part of the problem that, that Swift deals with. We're very much more the content production, aggregation and management of the workflow that delivers you that product record. The PIMs might then pick that up and, and do something else with it. Interesting. I'll, I'll, not, I'll add to that that... Um, sorry, I'll add to that that... Uh, we, for a lot of retailers, I think we can replace, we can replace or, you know, they can use Swift instead of a PIM if we tag onto a syndication tool uh, that, you know, that can then manage the, the syndication out to the other, the other resources. But a lot of times you, retailers bring in a PIM only to discover that, you know, that's really not what they needed and that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of focus in PIMs on, on, you know, data governance and you know, lots of approval steps and all that kind of stuff that retailers don't really necessarily need. So, you know, they may, we, we, you know, it may be best for us to work alongside a uh, PIM and it may be also we, that we can uh, be instead of a PIM. Yeah, it makes sense. And um, come back to that point, uh, James, that you made, or both of you made about many businesses still rely on a manual process of spreadsheets. Often it's because it's like better the devil you know. You know, it's inefficient, but it works. And I once worked yep. for a for a, um, a a a retail group, which is like a billion um, pounds in total retail group online, and they had a an insane Excel spreadsheet with mental macros, and one person who built it and maintained it who did all yeah. their content publishing yep. um, through a C through a CMS only using SFTP. It's bonkers, yep. but it worked, and they never wanted to change. So my question yep. to you is. How do you tackle this? Because there is resistance to change because the risk of change when you're working in larger retailers is big. So, and it's obviously complex unpicking each bit and then turn into a new. So how do you, how do you tackle resistance? Like what is your way of getting people to, to perceive the, the value of this? Well, I think it's, it's really sort of classic, you know, you know, from a sales perspective, I mean, certainly in terms of get everyone on board to do the project and to start building the business case, it's really a question of engaging with all those teams and really understanding just not only what they're doing right now, maybe they have that mega spreadsheet with all the macros. Maybe they have hundreds of spreadsheets, you know, which is which is quite often the case when we go in there. Or maybe they've built some internal tool, which is often what's happened as well. They've, they've tried to sort of, you know, get an access database almost and sort of whack all the data in there. Um, so even if it works for them in a certain sense, what you find when you start having those conversations, and Mike will attest to this, is that actually you start digging underneath it and you realize that there's no process connectivity and no collaboration. So while the data flow might work in the way that you've just described, what you lose is all the context. And we talk about this thing particularly with buyers, for example, because buyers are probably the most difficult group in the sense that they themselves are busy people. They're, you know, they're often working three months in advance of the, the product going live or maybe 12 months in advance. So so for them, you know, it's it's not only a question of getting the assortment right and making sure that, you know, they're buying the right quantities and all that good stuff. But fundamentally, they also want to retain the context of what they're doing and make sure that the downstream processes understand why they bought what they bought and what what the relationship of this particular item is to the assortment. And maybe there's some context and information in that around how they want it to be shot or how they want the, the romance copy to work or whatever it happens to be to really make sure that that assortment flies off the shelves. In order for them to do that, they then need to send loads of emails or maybe they've got to drop a PowerPoint in and people just forget what the context of that whole uh, assortment building process was. So, 
So things like that get uncovered in the process. And when you start talking to those individual teams, you realize that even if it sort of works and they're, they're sort of jerry rigged something that will kind of get it over the line, what they're very frustrated about is their inability to collaboratively move the needle. And a lot of the things that they think are really added value, we call it the buyer's golden nugget, um, just get lost in the process. So, so yes, you know, they found a way to do it right now, but the more you dig, the more you discover that actually there's huge amounts of frustration, that the problem with change is the other big challenge, i.e. something happens externally, everything needs to get reprioritized. You know, that process is completely broken and they spend, you know, weeks in meetings and, and huddles on Slack and, you know, emails flying left, right and center, just trying to work out, okay, fine, what do we now do? Um, so it doesn't take too much in, in my experience to move them from, yeah, good enough to actually, you know what, we're, we're leaving a ton of money on the table and we're also delivering, you know, in a way which is totally suboptimal to the downstream processes. And of course, the folks that are downstream, we're all very frustrated that they don't get this information. So the more you dig, the more you uncover. Um, but those process connectivity and collaboration issues tend to come to the fore and then they realize that actually there must be a better way to do this. One of the things we discovered in anthropology and the reason for the, the interface that we have is um, discovering, learning that, you know, customer, the, the, the buying teams and, and different users were really comfortable with using Excel. And if we gave them sort of form-based uh, interface that they really just sort of wanted to work in Excel and then put it into the system. And there's, you know, there's so much danger in the, in, you know, the inaccuracy of Excel with, you know, up to 40%, 45% I read of, of uh, formulas and information being inaccurate in spreadsheets, you know, the whole, the whole question of the austerity, a lot of logic behind the austerity uh, effort in, in the UK was, uh, was uh, potentially on, uh, on some, some bad, uh, bad spreadsheet data. <laughs> Um, it was a story about a spreadsheet that didn't. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that was really essential. It's like you know, give give them some place comfortable where they don't want to pull it off and create again another little island of data. The, the other point I wanted to make is that when you look at those internally built systems, you know, every retailer we talk to has seems to have some internal system that they're looking to get away from because, like you said, there's that person who built that incredible macro based. Uh, I saw one of those at, at William Sonoma that was just, you know, incredible, all the things it could do. But the person who built it wasn't there anymore. And so they had all this resource around trying to figure out how do they keep keep this beast alive when uh, it's, you know, the, the person who really understands how it works is no longer there. So we, we see a lot of times that the, the, those, you know, internal systems, it, you know, they, they see a big problem. They say, okay, we're going to solve this. We're going to build the system. The IT group gets together. They build it. But it's going to be, it's a one-off. They're going to build it and then they're going to maintain it. But retail is, changes too fast. It's, you know, the buying team is all, you know, the, the product is changing, what's happening online changing, you need more information, you need different pieces. You know, the, the inf online information, the stores now need more information for digital readouts, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff's happening. And that's that system they built is trying to, is, you know, it's hard to change. The people who built it originally aren't there anymore. So they're, you know, desperate to get off of it because it's, you know, uh, in the case of one, it's like, yes, it, it was great when they built it. And now it, there's like 25 different pieces of information that don't fit through that system. So then they still have to go around it to the ERP and add information manually. And there's only per one person who remembers where all those pieces are. And so it's like, they like, okay, we need something that will get us away from that and, and be more flexible and, and, and grow for the future rather than just be 
locked into this uh, the single way of doing business. Yeah, that makes sense. I've definitely seen a lot of those spreadsheets where uh, no one wants to touch them because probably the person that's built them have, uh, has left the business. Um, so final question, uh, kind of around the roadmap and new functionality. So can you just talk us through uh, any changes you made in 2023 that you're particularly pleased with or your, you know, your customers were really appreciated? And then any features and functionality you've got planned for 2024 that your customers will be particularly excited about? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> it's the reality, isn't there, Mike? I see that if you had any hair, Michael, it would be greyer. That's, that's the reality. But uh, we did a, an awful lot of work this last year. So launch Rockler. Um, that was a very successful project. But I think what we realized off the back of that is that we need much more configuration in the tool set. So, so Rockler was sort of, you know, B1, if you like, and was um, a very successful launch. Michael can talk about that in a bit more detail. But fundamentally, the, the platform just wasn't flexible enough. So we were going into um, new prospect discussions and having those detailed workshops and finding that fundamentally we'd have to rewrite half of it to support you know that particular process flow or some particular functional requirement that they had so we we decided to re-architect and so we we went back to the drawing board and completely changed the the back end architecture of the platform to be a fundamentally completely configurable so we have a totally flexible schema there's no restrictions on what you can model in the in the product and that means that we can actually workflow many different things, not just products. So we can workflow campaigns, we can workflow um, lots of different, you know, sort of mini projects within that. We can workflow the studio process, we can workflow, you know, all sorts of microsites and campaign launches and goodness knows what else. And that's very powerful in terms of connecting all the individual pieces together. We can also configure and set up the priority alerts and the rules and all the workflow stages in a completely configurable manner. There's a, there's a nice little process sort of workflow builder, if you like, and we can put the business rules into that uh, and configure those nice and visually. And we can essentially give the, the teams that run those um, infrastructures the, the tools to manage it themselves over time as well. So it becomes a much more self-service tool uh, with, a, with a lot more configurability. So that was a, that was a massive win. Um, we're about to go live with a with a big complex uh, retailer that will be on B2. So that's that's very exciting. Um, hopefully we'll have a bit more news on that over the next few weeks. But uh, they're the first ones to, to sort of take the new platform. The new platform also gives us the ability to model the product data as a graph. And uh, typically, you know, product data isn't a graph. You sort of chuck it into a bunch of tables. It's all normalized in your back end. But if you have a graph, it means that you can actually start doing some very interesting things in terms of joining that data together and bringing additional analytics and insights into that. So, you know, we'll talk about roadmap in a sec and Michael can pick up on some of these pieces. But, you know, the vision ultimately is that the teams that are it's sort of mission control for, for yeah, digital retail is probably the right way to put it in the sense that you know, we can bring together all of the data and information that those teams need to make better decisions about the assortment, the way that they're actually writing the copy, creating the media, delivering the product experience. We can integrate all sorts of functionality into the platform now in a much more seamless way so we can connect to lots of other systems. We can pull all those different messages and, uh, and different integration points together. We're doing some work with Patchworks at the back end to create a connector there. So you know, Jim and I are having a good chat about that, which means that we can very quickly and effectively get customers up and running. And we're also building an integration solution with Ampience as well and some of the other CMSs because then we've got really the end-to-end. -end. You can go from the assortment, planning, and building 
all the way through to the promotion, marketing, and delivery of that um, product and content and campaign onto the digital channels themselves. And that's that's a very exciting opportunity, but it all comes from having this significantly more flexible architecture that we've been working on. Michael, what about roadmap stuff? Uh, so looking at that roadmap stuff, where we're really focused is on, you know, continuing to uh, add functionality and improve the, the features that we offer now. Um, uh, we're looking to bring in uh, a vendor portal and uh, some tools for, for sort of easing and 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 expediting and automating the the process of gathering data from uh various retailers or various uh sources from vendors etc to make it uh you know less uh, less challenging for the the econ teams and, and buying teams to gather the information they need um we're looking at uh you know making some enhancements in multi-language we, we already have capabilities in handling multi multiple languages but increasing that um, looking at bringing in uh, some DAP capabilities and um, and looking at uh, you know a big piece is going to be analytics and and increasing that um, and then just a lot of work can continuing to build our, our capabilities in, in uh, from the back end perspective and the amount of uh, data that we can handle and the speed with which we can we can uh, serve up the information to the users. Yeah, that's a good point on on capacity. I mean, you know, we're, we're we're talking to retailers now that have you know six to ten million SKUs. That's quite a lot of data to manage. You know, so so part of what we've done as as the re the rearchitecture was do the graph modeling, and then we're we're doing some work to 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 make sure that scalability wise, you know, we can have hundreds of actors in the system all acting concurrently across you know millions and millions of data points. Uh, so essentially, it becomes that kind of hub. You know, it's the core part of the the retail. Um, business operation that, that sort of feeds all the channels. And if we can do that in the way that we're imagining it, it really becomes like I say, sort of mission control. You've got everything that you need. You've got total visibility across the business as to what's going on and what the status of the work is. And and with all the analytics that Michael's been talking about, you can also make everyone accountable versus their KPIs as well. Because for the first time, this sort of rather opaque part of the retail operation, which everybody sort of knows is probably not optimal but no one really understands that well you know we can visit we can we can make visible everything that's happening in that back end and do it in such a way that you know exact team and everyone else can look at that and go okay fine you know what is what is the is no status in the business how much products in there how much more money could we be making if we improve that um what could we do fundamentally to improve the performance of that product when it's in channel you know, what's the analytics data telling us about maybe what we need to think about from a workflow perspective. And then, you know, we've got the opportunity post all that, once we've got all those pieces in place to bring all the, the clever AI stuff through. There's a lot of discussion about AI in, in things like product descriptions, right? Because it gives you potentially a way to generate those quite effectively, particularly if you're doing multi-language stuff. Um, there's lots of retailers I'm talking to already doing that. You know, they're using Excel and they're using ChatGPT to sort of bring that data through. But the problem fundamentally is that is that that data needs to live somewhere. It's got to land as part of a workflow and a process. And so, you know, one of the things we're doing with the Ampliance integration is using all the great AI work that John and team are doing at the back end there that we're going to bring through into the platform that you get a content form that can essentially write the content for you. We can bring studio tools around the images that will remove backgrounds, that will, you know, create different versions of that content for different channels. There's lots of opportunity for automation, but I think we just we've got a bit of work to get all the fundamentals in place. But then I think we can completely change the productivity game as well. 
Interesting. It's going to be a, going to be a quiet year in 2024 for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Pretty quiet. <laughs> um, it's going to be. Oh, I have to say. But uh, excellent. We're, we'll 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 bring it to a close because we we've got, still got so many questions. So I'm, I find this really interesting area. Um, it, you know, the, the automation piece is so important, and I definitely feel like that 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 this year and going forwards there will be more focus on operational efficiency. I hope so. Anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and also, yeah. I like that idea. I like what you talked about the transparency from a data point of view. Because if people can report on the impact of where things are in bottlenecks, it will lead to change quicker yeah. than when you just don't know what that's going on and where things are and the scale of it. So, look, really, really enjoyed chatting to you both. Appreciate you taking the time. For for those listening, hope you enjoyed it. We'll have links on our website yeah. um, to Swift and to James and Michael, and also hit them up on on LinkedIn if you want. If you've got questions or if you want to look at the product in more detail. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to, to follow up and have a conversation with you. Um, and thanks, as always, for everyone for listening. Keep your ears open for the next episode. And don't forget to give us that rating before you go. Until next week, everybody. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.